relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Welcome back, dear friends. This is America First one-on-one, where we have an uninterrupted discussion with one of our good friends, experts on a specific issue and an opportunity to dive deep onto the big issues of the day and to just get a little bit more strategic than you can in the legacy media where you have to solve big issues in 130 seconds, not here on America First one-on-one. And we are delighted to have with us somebody who's been our guide on mentor for issues strategic especially when it comes to asia and the threat of china he is the author most recently of you will be assimilated china's plan to sinoform the world he is known as spengler to those in the know uh, writes under that nom de guerre for asia times follow him on twitter at david p goldman david goldman welcome to america first one-on-one Seb, it is an honor and privilege. Thanks so much for the invitation. So we have so much to discuss. The consequences, the global ramifications of the events of the last 14 days, especially when it comes to the strategic threat uh, posed by (coughs) communist China. But first, for those who are not familiar with your work, just had this video link sent to them or just caught this audio podcast. Will you introduce us, say a little bit about yourself, how you got to where you are today and who Spengler really is. Well, I've been writing uh, the Spengler column uh, at Asia Times for 20 years, starting with 9-11, on the premise that jihad was a perpetual strategic danger and that it had a significant chance of winning against the West. And we've just had, 20 years after 9-11, the first major strategic defeat by a Western power inflicted by jihad since the Afghans kicked the British uh, out in the middle of the 19th century, although I think in many ways this is much worse. Uh, I became deeply concerned about China, uh, doing work for a boutique investment bank in Hong Kong, where I got an inside view of some of the technological tricks that the Chinese were up to, and became convinced that unless we got our game together, China would overtake us in a decade in key technologies and disastrously become the world's dominant economic power with ghastly consequences for the United States and our standard of living and our security. And why the the pseudonym, why the nom de plume of uh, Spengler? Uh, explain that to our listeners and viewers. Oh, that, that was a joke. Uh, Oswald Spengler wrote in 1918 a famous book called The Decline of the West, and I thought it would be amusing for an Asian newspaper to have a columnist uh, using that pseudonym. So that was really a joke. Spengler was a bright guy, though uh, many parts of his theory I find detest- detestable like his biological theory of rise and decline. He thinks all civilizations go down the drain. I don't think ours has to if we let it go uh, go down the drain. It's our fault and not 
that of some abstract historical process. And let's let's start with this question of this this nation you've been focusing on for so long. Um, describe for us, if you will, or explain. Let me let me work backwards. How well does the political elite in America, the national security policy making elite, and big business those three groups? How well do they understand what communist China is, David? Well, I think you can uh, divide them into three groups. Doesn't know, doesn't care, and both of the above. Uh, Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration. People like Kurt Campbell and Rush Doshi, who are on Biden's White House staff, are reasonably proficient in Chinese history. Rush Doshi knows the Chinese language quite well. He used to run the Chinese studies program at Brookings. I have a review coming out of his new book uh, in the Claremont Review of Books next month. I think he understands some things, but what I think has been missed is that China, with a population of a billion and a half people, with an enormous amount of energy, with elite school kids who study six days a week, 12 hours a day, with universities, with faculties trained at our universities, we trained up world-class faculty for Chinese universities, is determined to become a dominant economic power and to become the key player in what's called the fourth industrial revolution, the revolution of artificial intelligence and big data. They have a trillion and a half dollar government budget to force the development of these technologies We can't even get around to building semiconductor fabrication plants in the middle of a chip shortage that's shutting down our auto industry. So the Chinese have a lot of smart and hardworking people. It's extremely dynamic, and they're determined to be the best. I think we've got key advantages over the Chinese if we use them, but tragically, we have not been. Let's address one of the conventional wisdoms that is often raised with regards to China, and it's something that uh, percolated through um, the policy elites, the business elites in the 1970s and 80s when Japan was rising and the the car industry was threatened by the likes of Toyota and Honda. Um, Many people have said China's not a threat because they can't innovate. They can steal and copy and reverse engineer, but they come from a culture where risk-taking and innovation is not endemic, isn't encouraged. And as such, there's a, there's a ceiling to just how much of a competitor they can be. Was that true? Is that true? Or is it a complete misconception, David? It's a partial truth, which is the most dangerous kind of falsehood. It's falsehood. It's certainly true that the average Chinese STEM student or engineer is less likely to be a dynamic innovator than the average American. But there are two things that mitigate it. One is there are so many Chinese that amongst them you find many innovators. As an investment banker in Hong Kong, I helped take some of their companies public. I was very impressed by them. And the second thing is China is not a country, it's an empire. If you take Huawei, which is... Uh, now the symbol of Chinese uh, economic expansion. They've got 200,000 employees, 
50,000 of them are Westerners, overwhelmingly European, some Australians. They dominate the basic R&D. Explain China, to those who aren't familiar what Huawei does, David. Huawei is the world's dominant telecommunications equipment company. It's the dominant player in 5G infrastructure. It has more than 30% of the world infrastructure market. And it holds more patents, more innovations in 5G than anyone else. And even if it were the case that they couldn't find a single Chinese scientist capable of innovating, they are not a Chinese company. They are an imperial company with 50,000 R&D personnel hired from the West. It's like the uh, Mongols who destroyed, uh, who took down Baghdad in the middle of the 13th century by hiring Chinese, a thousand Chinese siege engineers. Or the Turks who hired Venetian siege engineers to destroy the walls of Constantinople in 1453. So China has plenty of access to innovation both internally and by hiring it from the rest of the world. So how communist is China uh, and how much has it changed under Xi Jinping? It's, it's still a state where there's only one political party, but what is the best way to describe the economy and the type of political system that is Xi Jinping's China, David? Well, uh, China is... Deeply communist, the way the Italian mafia is deeply Catholic. <laughs> they take their communism very seriously, the way the mafiosi take Catholicism very seriously. But it's not always clear what the practical importance of the ideology is. China, for 5,000 years, has had a centralized state run by a mandarin caste of bureaucrats selected by, with a certain amount of meritocracy by standardized exams which have directed massive infrastructure efforts, which are fundamental to the Chinese economy because it's based on massive river systems, with, which are prone to flooding. The Chinese system today is much more like the ancient Chinese imperial model than it is, say, like Russian communism or Cuban communism. China has never once in its history developed the idea that individual rights are sacred. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Chinese emperors buried a million workers in the Great Wall of China when they constructed it, and the Chinese today are perfectly willing to <clears throat> sacrifice millions of people to what they consider to be the greater good. Uh, the Chinese people, unlike the Japanese, never like their emperor. They don't like the Communist Party. The Communist Party has a fairly secure rule because per capita personal income in China has risen nearly tenfold in the past generation. They've accomplished quite a great deal by taking subsistence farmers from the countryside and making them industrial workers in the cities. A generation ago, only a fifth of Chinese lived in the cities. Now two-thirds of them do. So they've had an enormous increase in productivity. It's a very brutal government which will treat uh, prospective dissidents as uh, prospective kidney donors. It's a system which we Westerners find uh, in most ways repugnant. But it's a very ancient system, and it's not one which is easy to replace. So the idea that China 
which we heard from all of the panda huggers for years. Uh, the idea that China was going to become a democracy as it became richer, as it developed more market mechanisms, turned out to be one of the worst ideas anybody ever had about politics and history. Uh, on the other hand, uh, China has a National People's Congress with a hundred billionaires among the delegates. Uh, they're perfectly happy to let people get rich and have a great deal of room to swing in private enterprise as long as all the key decisions and control of key resources remain in the hands of the Communist Party. That includes, for example, data. In the United States, we conservatives are deeply concerned about the data monopoly of the Googles and Facebooks and so forth and what that means for freedom and control of freedom of expression. In China, there's been a crackdown of the tech industry which basically places all of the data under the direct supervision of the government. Now, I'm not sure I like Google that much better than the Chinese Communist Party, uh, but uh, if it came to, to a choice, I'd prefer Google. Let's uh, pull straight up to the <coughs> events of uh, today and the events of the last two weeks. Talk to us how about how... America's surrender of Kabul, the full withdrawal of our military from Afghanistan, how that changes not only the map of Central Asia and South Asia, but how that changes the sphere of mobility and the plans for communist China and Xi Jinping. Well, I think this is a strategic catastrophe, much worse than Saigon in 1975. Thanks to Richard Nixon, uh, we had a deal with China when we let Vietnam go down that China would not try to exploit the collapse of the pro-American government in Vietnam to create many Vietnams around it. China was uh, quite cautious based on the deal with Nixon. This time, by surrendering to a jihadist movement in a humiliating and abject way, we have created a monster which will be very hard to contain, and that monster is a Russian-Chinese alliance to st uh, keep Central Asia and large parts of Western Asia safe for China. China's biggest fear is always internal security. Economics always comes second. The Chinese Communist Party is a security state. China has 20 million Muslims but it also is ringed by countries with hundreds of billions of Muslims, particularly Indonesia, then Philippines, southern Thailand. And China's nightmare is a jihadi uprising in Southeast Asia, which will put at risk its entire economic periphery and stimulate terrorism among jihadists in China itself. I've heard this directly from Chinese military leaders and security people on many visits to China. China also has an ally in Russia, which is also concerned. 20% of Russia's population is Muslim. So the first thing that China did with Russia after the fall of Kabul was to bring Iran into something called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. That's not quite a Chinese NATO, but it functions the same way. They effectively created a military alliance with Iran. 
you know everything you need to know about Chinese foreign policy by watching the Godfather series. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So the first thing the Chinese will do when they're faced with a government in Afghanistan, which is chaotic, with a border with their western province, Xinjiang, which has a uh, majority Muslim population, is to cozy up to the Afghanistan. So they'll tell the Afghanistans, you've got two choices. One is, we make you rich. We mine your lithium, uh, we mine your other minerals, we give, get you a lot of money, uh, and you can be a nice uh, partner in our Belt and Road Initiative and our new Asian crow prosperity sphere, whatever they want to call it. Or you can mess with us and we'll kill you all. The Chinese have been conducting extermination campaigns against what they call unruly barbarians for the last several thousand years. They'll go to the Iranians, who are Shia, and say, you don't really want the Sunni Afghans to be the leader of world jihad, so why don't you work with us to try to contain that problem? They'll go to the other Arabs, including the Saudis, and say, you can't trust the Americans now. You better deal with us. We'll take care of your security because Washington will hang you out to dry. So, in effect, by showing this kind of weakness, we have invited the Chinese, in partnership with the Russians, to develop a dominant role in Central and Western Asia. That's the monster we've called into being. And that's why uh, Biden's capitulation and incompetence in Afghanistan is such a debacle for the United States. You mentioned uh, Vietnam, Nixon. Uh, how much of where we are today? Because I, when I entered the White House, I, I was there to do national security and counterterrorism. But once you get the clearances and read the reports, you realize the only real strategic threat we face is China in, in, with, with you know, long-term peer competitor. How much of where we are today, David, really lies in terms of culpability at the feet of maybe not Nixon, but definitely Kissinger for convincing Nixon to open to China and then selling this idea that a, a, an opening to China economically would liberalize it politically. Who's really responsible for selling that absolute fantasy to the West? Uh, I don't think Nixon had that fantasy. Uh, from, the historians tell us it was Nixon's initiative, not Kissinger's, to open a China. Kissinger did the implementation. At the time, uh, Nixon had two problems. One was the imminent fall of Vietnam. He knew the American people would not be willing to make the sacrifices that would be required to prevent a communist takeover in South Vietnam. And he wanted to contain the impact. Secondly, he had the Soviet Union to deal with. There are many historians who believe that Nixon's opening to China was decisive in winning the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And there's no question that it contributed to America's victory in the Cold War. Uh, it's hard to condemn Nixon for taking the actions he did, given the choices he had at the time. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I think the problem was the Clinton administration's naivete and the Bush administration's naivete uh, put us in a situation where China had a, now has a real opportunity to become, to become the dominant player in the world. 
just to give you one idea, if we spent we spent five trillion dollars on uh, what Donald Trump appropriately called forever wars uh, and got nothing out of it, if we had spent a tenth of that money on the kind of uh, 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 military related research and development and high technology uh, incubation that the Reagan administration did so successfully, we would be so far ahead of China now, they would have no hope of catching up. So I believe there are other measures we could have taken with China, with respect to China, and with, indeed with respect to the US economy, that would have avoided uh, this disaster. The Bush administration was run by people who thought that there was no need for the US to manufacture everything. We'd get cheap imports from China, and we do the software, the design. They do the dirty work, we do the clean stuff. And that was a catastrophic economic policy. It wasn't necessary at all. Okay. Um, I have so many different avenues I could go down. Uh, the book is You Will Be Assimilated, uh, China's Plan to Sino-Form the World, by our friend here on America First one-on-one, uh, David P. Goldman. Uh, David, let's look at what has happened in the last seven months, not just the last few days. Here's a clip from the first... Sino-U.S. summit uh, once uh, the Biden administration was in place. Play cuts. So for China, it was necessary that we make our position clear. So let me say here that in front of the Chinese side, the United States does not have the qualification to say that it wants to speak to China from a position of strength. The chief diplomat of Communist China used literal Antifa and BLM talking points during that summit, talked about America being a racist nation that can't dictate human rights to anybody else. What what does that show? Doesn't that show you know a, a kind of Sun Tzu appreciation of knowing your enemy? That that Blink and our diplomat just sat there like a sheep with no response, but China was using domestic internal political talking points from the Democrat side against a Democrat administration. David, I think the Chinese are very ill advised to insult us this way. It won't do them any good. It'll just get us angry. Uh, but I think what it, it, the most important thing it shows, Sebastian, is that the Chinese feel powerful. Yeah. They feel powerful enough to insult us on our home ground. Why is that? Donald Trump uh, put a tariff of about uh, 20% on roughly half of uh, the exports that China sends to the U.S. Right now, China's exports are 20% to the U.S. are 20 percent higher than they were uh, in January 2018 when Trump imposed the tariffs. They amount to a quarter of our entire manufacturing gross domestic product. We are more dependent on Chinese imports than ever before in the past. And there are many things like smartphones, computers and so forth, a lot of electronics. We simply don't manufacture here. Uh, Tim Cook, the uh, uh, outgoing uh, chairman of Apple, said he can't manufacture a smartphone in the United States. He simply doesn't have the process engineers to do it. 
So the Chinese believe they can't, the U.S. can't deal without them. That's number one. And getting out of that hole, replacing those imports, would probably require something in the range of a trillion dollars of capital investment. Now, that's not outside our range. If Biden can propose three and a half trillion dollars of handouts to Democratic political constituencies, we can find a trillion dollars uh, to reestablish our industrial independence. But it's not an easy job. In technology, uh, we place sanctions on Chinese sourcing of American high-tech products, particularly computer chips that were built with American technology, even if they're built outside the United States. Well, According to every estimate I've seen, China's going to build, China has something like 900,000 5G base stations. That's the basic unit which propagates the 5G signal that you pick up on your smartphone or other receiver. Uh, that's 70% of the world's total. The United States has 7% of the world's total. China's going to be building another million base stations in the next year. Where did they get the chips from, despite the U.S. sanctions? Well, some of them, uh, they're making at home. They're, they've got a crash effort to manufacture ships. But a lot of them they're buying because the United States is looking the other way. We don't feel we have the power to enforce the sanctions that we have on the books. Why is that? Well, Huawei controls sufficient 5G patents that American mobile providers, like Verizon, require in order to make their own build-outs. The Chinese uh, allowed American companies to use Huawei's patents because they dominate the technology in return for the Commerce Department turning a blind eye or allowing exceptions to uh, Chinese sourcing of American uh, of American-made chips or chips with American technology. They feel powerful, and they, that's because they have real economic power. They have supply chains in depth. They have the biggest build-out of 5G, which is the core technology of the fourth industrial revolution, in the world. And they see the United States flailing, so they feel entitled to push us around, bitch-slap us, if you pardon the expression. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've used that expression every time to introduce that clip myself. We're having a bit of a Vulcan mind meld, of course, uh, with our good friend uh, David Goldman. A great, great minds think alike, Sebastian. I know, and we've got to fight the Borg. We've got to fight the Borg, that's for sure. But this time it's not science fiction. My friends, as a personal favor to me, uh, may I ask you to do something? There is a great man, a great patriot, a great American who is under constant attack. They want to destroy him, not just cancel him. He's the former mayor of New York. His name is Rudy Giuliani. He's a friend and he needs your support. They're trying to strip him of his law licenses. They're trying to bankrupt the man. Please make a donation if you can. He's in the midst of investigating what happened in the election last year. Go to RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. He saved New York. He's fighting for the truth. Please, please support America's mayor, RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. Let me ask the question that... Um, is out there that nobody wants to discuss, especially in the new administration. Is China that confident, David, that they are prepared to engage in a shooting war with America? Or do they understand what that would mean for them? And are they happy to stay 
in the indirect form of warfare that Sun Tzu has taught us, the financial, the intelligence, the political, how, how, how arrogant have they become and how arrogant is the Chinese military? Uh, I think the Chinese are both arrogant and paranoid. The Chinese uh, live in constant fear that the West will do something to try to break them up and throw them back into um, the kind of civil war and internal chaos they had for a century, basically, until Mao Zedong uh, consolidated power. The, the dire fear of every Chinese government, every Chinese dynasty, is a rebel province. They consider Taiwan a rebel province. Their belief is if Taiwan gained full sovereignty, then... Uh, China would at itself be at risk of breakup. So if they believed the West were going to, for example, arm Taiwan with its very best weapons, say F-35s and its best air defense systems, offensive missiles and so forth, they would preemptively invade to stop Taiwan from becoming sovereign. If they are convinced the West is willing to go along with the one China fiction that Taiwan is simply a province of China, it's for the Chinese to work out, and that will be settled at some point in the future. I don't believe that they'll invade, because the consequences of doing so would be catastrophic for them. Right now, Japan is hugely dependent on Chinese exports, but if China were to invade Taiwan, Japan would cut them off. Japan would take a massive dep economic depression, rather than stand by and let China uh, crush Taiwan. I think the rest of the West would uh, would take the same response. We'd have a world depression as a result, but we would not stand for that. That would cause untold economic misery in China. And, of course, there's the possibility of you know, Chinese cities being destroyed. And whatever happened would not be good for the rule of the Communist Party. And the Communist Party's central objective is to proper, is to keep its rule in place above all. So in that sense, they're risk averse. They won't take risks. They don't have to. They're, if, of course, the West shows itself to be complete wet noodles and refuses to do anything to support Taiwan, the Chinese might march in with the belief that they'll pay no penalty for it. So from the Western standpoint, the best thing to do is to support Taiwan, but not push the sovereignty issue in such an aggressive way that it uh, provokes the Chinese preemption. I don't think we want a war with China. Nobody would win that. It, we'd, lo we'd lose a bunch of cities. The Chinese would lose a bunch of cities. And the result would be a stalemate with uh, tens of millions of dead people. So, in, in the meantime, talk to us about what they are doing. Talk to us about the significance of the Confucian Institutes. Talk to us about what they're doing around the globe, not just in Central Asia, but in Africa and elsewhere. You know, they are at war with us. President Trump was right. So explain to us the, the indirect mode of attack and, and the various forms of it. I saw this firsthand, as a matter of fact, inadvertently, uh, five, six years ago, I was part of it, as I wrote in the book. Um, I, as an investment banker, at the behest of my friend, who was then the Mexican ambassador to the United States, 
I brought Huawei to Mexico and introduced them to people in the Mexican government. Huawei afterwards got a contract to build a national broadband network in Mexico. Uh, also Brazil, also many other parts of Latin America. Colombia is another important case. So the Brazilians have told the United States, you used to be our friends, but what have you done for us lately? We like the Chinese. They give us all these cool technologies. The thing that frightens me most about the Chinese in countries that are, say, on our border, as well as countries that are important to us, is their broadband technology and the things attached to it actually do work very well. The, the price of broadband in Mexico has dropped by two-thirds since Huawei came in. Uh, when I was there uh, uh, with the Huawei people, the taxi drivers couldn't use Waze because they couldn't afford the broadband. Now Mexico City is the second largest market for Waze in the world. So they're using their technology as a thin net of the wedge to gain confidence and gain control and dominance of economies because once you control the mobile broadband networks, you bring in e-commerce, you bring in e-finance, you take over the payment system, you take over retailing, you take over business services, you take over logistics and port management, and eventually you have the company, you have that country by the throat. And that's, of course, in addition to the Belt and Road Initiative projects where they lend money to countries uh, to build major projects and then get them into a debt trap, which gives them enormous political leverage. So in many parts of the world, Central Asia, Latin America, Southeast Asia, Africa, the Chinese, without firing a shot and without sending a single soldier, are gaining vast amounts of influence and power over countries that uh, collectively have several billion people in them. And the role of the Confucian Institutes here in America and the role of uh, Chinese influence operations in academe? Well, Chinese influence operations are really obvious. The fuel for research today, the fuel of the artificial intelligence revolution is data. If you want to do uh, big data analysis in health research, say, for example, looking at drug interactions or uh, researching DNA patterns for possible cures for genetic diseases, you can't do it without Chinese data. There are no personal protection rights in China. They have got the sequenced DNA and the medical histories digitized for hundreds of millions of people. Biggest database in the world. So I know many people in that field who say, we simply can't do our work without China. So they'll get American professors or Chinese professors working at American universities who get hooked into their system because they can't work without the data. The Confucian Institutes and their propaganda arm, uh, Chinese propaganda is probably one of the worst products of the human imagination in all of history. It's just so badly done uh, that I can't imagine it has uh, a terrible effect. But the impact of Chinese control over data has a huge radiating effect on American universities and draws people into their orbit and gives them access to some of our best brains. Remember, four-fifths of all doctoral candidates at American universities are foreign students, and most of those are Chinese. So we have a huge machine taking American expertise and pumping it into China, 
uh, both through research contacts and more importantly, as the best graduate students are offered higher salaries to start in China than they are in the United States. All right, let's let's cut to the chase. What is China most afraid of, David? Is it democracy? Is it uh, an internal civil war with the Uyghur Muslims? Is it falling back into the, the state of the warring states two and a half thousand years ago? In your estimation, what drives the threat perception of the Communist Party and Xi Jinping? Well, what Xi Jinping has devoted his uh, ire at uh, most recently is the softness of the current generations. China is uh, is a very soulless society. Uh, You've got some aspects of traditional religion and a certain number of Christians, uh, but that's largely been suppressed. It's a very small minority of the country. So what the Communist Party has offered people is get rich, get comfortable. And now they find that the younger generation tends to reject the system. They tend to pick up on some of the they tend to pick up a Western pop culture. Uh, you have a phenomenon called lying back, which is what we used to call slacking in the United States. Uh, and above all, you have demographic bust. Uh, and that's true in all of East Asia. As East Asians came out of traditional society, into modern society, they really stopped having children. So China's facing a long-term demographic problem. It's not as severe as Japan, Korea, or Taiwan, by the way, but it's still a severe problem. So they're afraid that the soullessness and materialism of their system is going to create a generation which is apathetic, lazy, and simply uninterested in accomplishment. And that's been the pattern of Chinese history. A Chinese dynasty becomes prosperous, it becomes soft um, and lazy, and then it's overtaken by barbarians or subject to natural disaster and the dynasty collapses. China's problem is a spiritual one, fundamentally. It's a country where people's spiritual life exists only in their family, but not in the public sphere. And that's something which the Communist Party is not very good at dealing with, and they're panicking about it a bit. All right, let's then jump to the so what, the praxis of it all. This administration is in huge trouble. Biden is underwater in terms of popularity, whether it's the border, the economy, COVID or Afghanistan, it's disasters wherever you look. What is your advice to the next president? Uh, I saw President Trump recently. I know he's running. Whether it's President Trump or, or another Republican, what should be the right approach to China, David? Uh, our approach to China should be the same as our approach to the Soviet Union in the 1980s and our approach to Nazi Germany in the 1940s, which is to massively mobilize our resources and the spirit of the American people to leapfrog our enemies and use American ingenuity and American industrial power to make ourselves the dominant, insuperable power in the world. We did this with the arsenal of democracy in World War II. We did this uh, in the Reagan military buildups with Strategic Defense Initiative and other initiatives. We crushed the Axis and we crushed uh, communism in the 1980s. China is a much more formidable adversary in part because it's so much larger than any of the adversaries we faced in the past. But Technology is the great multiplier. 
The problem we've got, Sebastian, is we have six, five or six percent of our undergraduates study engineering. Yeah. In China, it's 33 yeah. percent. We have universities run by diversity managers. We've got to reform our educational system. We've got to reform our industrial system to return to high-tech manufacturing and dominance in the decisive technologies of the 21st century, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, uh, high-energy physics, missile defense. There are a whole list of things you and I could put together because we've done them before. So I think the United States should simply do what it's good at, what it's done so successfully in the past, as opposed to this uh, die combination, uh, diversity, inclusion, and equality, <laughs> which is turning us into you know, a gigantic... Uh, uh, romper room. I like that a very apposite uh, acronym there. We've been talking to David Goldman. Follow him, David P. Goldman, on Twitter. Read him in the Asia Times, the Spengler column, PJ Media, and most specifically, the book, You Will Be Assimilated, China's Plan to Sinoform the World. I'm Sebastian Gorka. You've been listening to America First One on One. Wherever you are, keep your head on a swivel. Watch your six. Hold the line. Never give up. Never give in. And stay frosty. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.